Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of California Dreaming. In a departure from the usual, I have an interview with two special guests, one of them you've heard on the show previously. Together, they host the Safe Haven podcast, and they are Melissa and Justin. It had been more than a year since I'd spoken to Justin, and even longer since you've heard his voice on this show. But I reached out to him recently, and you know who I'm talking about, right? He's one of those people where you only need to know him by his first name, but there's a lot of Justins out there. Justin Rimmel from the Mysterious Circumstances podcast. I reached out to him recently because of some posts that I had been seeing him make on social media regarding the case that their podcast is about, which is the 2008 unsolved murder of a 48-year-old Parkersburg, West Virginia woman named Judy Petty. He has teamed up with some investigators, Melissa being one of them, along with Jennifer Buchholz and George Jared, who have had success with investigating and solving cold cases that they are asked to take a look at. Cold cases that are submitted to the team have to meet certain criteria in order for them to be able to take it on, and Judy's case was one of those. So I'm going to give you a brief summary of her story, so it will be easier for you to follow along when you get to the interview section of this episode. So, as I stated, Judy was from Parkersburg, and if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that we have ever talked about a case from the state of West Virginia, so we can check that box off. Judy is one of five daughters of Marvin and Joan Petty, and was a lifelong resident of Parkersburg. At the time of her death, she was living with her grandmother, Elaine, and was her primary caregiver. Judy went missing on the afternoon of February 6, 2008, when she left her grandmother's house to walk about a mile to the local public library in downtown Parkersburg to return some books. The books have been confirmed by the library to have been returned, but whatever it was that happened to Judy from there is a mystery. Her body was found the following day in the burnt-out remnants of the Petty family farmhouse, specifically in the cellar of an outbuilding on the property, and she was burnt beyond recognition. The family property is located approximately 13 miles or 22 kilometers away from her grandmother's house. How Judy ended up at the family property, why she was there, who brought her there, who killed her, and who set the structures on fire remains a mystery to this day as well as we are coming up on the 15th anniversary of Judy's death this week. When Judy, who was a type 1 diabetic, failed to return home that afternoon, her family grew worried and began driving around to look for her, fearing that she might have been experiencing a medical emergency. She didn't have a cell phone, so there was no way to call her. Her father, Mr. Marvin Petty, on a hunch, drove out to the family property that evening, but he saw no indication that she was there at that time. The farmhouse is a place that Judy spent a great deal of time at as a child. It was her safe haven, hence the name of Melissa and Justin's podcast that's dedicated to her. It would be around 10 p.m. when the Petty family reported Judy missing to the Parkersburg Police Department. However, the official search for her would not commence until the following day. 
In the meantime, the family continued searching until about two in the morning. They resumed their search at dawn the following day, February 7th. By then, the local news had picked up on Judy, having gone missing, and began reporting it. Also the following morning, Mr. Petty decided to try and look at the family property again to see if he would be able to find Judy. Because of the steep and muddy nature of the driveway, Mr. Petty was unable to drive his vehicle, so he walked up on foot. There's a gate with a lock that prevents people from accessing the driveway with a vehicle, but one could just walk around it on foot. It wasn't a property that was surrounded by a fence. You will hear Justin and Melissa talk about this driveway and just how steep it actually is. And you really can't see the main house very well from that vantage point at the end of the driveway. So as Mr. Petty got closer to the farmhouse, it was only then he found the structure to be engulfed in flames. He hurried back down towards the end of the driveway to call 911 because he wasn't getting good service at the top of the driveway and the fire department personnel began arriving at the scene at approximately 9.30 a.m. Unfortunately, again because of the driveway, firefighters were unable to drive their trucks up onto the property in order to douse the flames, so it had to be left to burn itself out. And from the looks of it, it appeared that the fire had been going on for several hours by the time Mr. Petty reported it. Once they had a chance to inspect the burnt property, it was found that the farmhouse, the outbuilding, a motorcycle, a truck, and a tree had all been burnt. It took several hours for the ground to cool down enough for a search to begin. The feeling early on was that Duty's disappearance and this fire were no coincidence. So they began shoveling and shifting through the rubble. And it would be Mr. Petty who first saw what he thought were skeletal remains in the burnt-out area where the outhouse once stood. He immediately alerted the investigators. The coroner was called to the scene and confirmed that the bones were indeed human. Later on, at autopsy, the remains were positively identified through dental records to be those of Judy Petty. Her body had been burned beyond recognition. She had been found in the corner of the cellar area of the outhouse, and because of the nature of that structure and the way that it was built underground, which was accessed by one exterior staircase, it acted like an oven by trapping the fire and the heat, almost completely cremating Judy's body. Now there were even more unanswered questions that the family has been desperate for answers to for the last 15 years beginning with how did Judy get from downtown Parkersburg to the family property, and most importantly, who killed Judy and who set the property on fire? Because the fire had burned for so long and so intensely, investigators were unable to determine the origin of the fire or whether or not an accelerant was used. Melissa and Justin have spoken to an arson expert on their podcast. So after you listen to this, you can follow the link that I have provided for you in the show notes, or you can search for Safe Haven Judy Petty in your podcast directories and subscribe. You will hear directly from Judy's parents, 
along with the deep dive, boots on the ground investigation into her case. Also, because of the intensity of the fire and the extensive damage to Judy's body, a cause of death could not be determined. So, as of 15 years ago, her death is officially undetermined. And it is important for anyone interested or involved in this case to know that further investigation is not only needed, but recommended by the medical examiner. This should not have been something set aside and allowed to grow cold, because there is at least one viable person of interest who has readily admitted to giving Judy a ride the evening that she disappeared. There are some inconsistencies in his story, but he has been willing to speak to Melissa about Judy, and I believe she's going to speak to him again this weekend when she travels to West Virginia for the 15th anniversary and fundraising event to help increase the reward fund. And I will provide links for all of that in the show notes as well. It's coming up this weekend. And we will talk about this person in the interview. While Judy's body was burned extensively, there was some tissue intact along with her liver, which the medical examiner was able to set aside and have toxicology tests performed on these samples. And those tests showed that Judy did not have any alcohol or illicit drugs in her system. She had therapeutic levels of an antidepressant that she was prescribed, nothing anywhere near being lethal. And based on the levels of carbon monoxide found in her system, the medical examiner was able to confirm that Judy was dead before the fire started. The farmhouse and the outbuilding were 32 feet or almost 10 meters apart. And it's possible that the arsonist set both of the buildings on fire, according to the arson expert that Justin and Melissa spoke to. But because the winds were relatively strong that evening, the fire could have jumped from one building to another because the area between the buildings were not burned. Officially, however, just like Judy's cause of death, the cause of the fire was also found to be undetermined. They couldn't tell if it was an accident or if it was arson. There has been at least one law enforcement official who has stated that he believes Judy's death was an act of suicide and that she did all of this on her own. Even though the evidence, and not to mention Judy's own physical limitations and her fear of the outhouse due to it being susceptible to wildlife and varmints, it tends to show otherwise that this is probably not a suicide. However, until they nail down some definitive answers, Melissa and Justin won't rule anything out. So here is our interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of California Dreaming. I have two very special guests today who are here to talk about a mysterious case involving the 2008 death of 48-year-old Judy Petty. She was a resident of Park Parkersburg, West Virginia. I have with me here today, Melissa and Justin. I wanna thank you guys for talking with me today about this case. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedules. So please introduce yourselves to the listeners. Tell us about yourselves and how it is you two became involved with Judy's case. Uh, Melissa, do you wanna go ahead and go first? I'll let you go. 
All right, then I will. <laughs> so for listeners who have been listening to Roseanne for a long time, I'm sure you've heard a, a few episodes that we have done together. Um, so Judy's case came about in an interesting way. So a few, a couple years ago, I joined a group called the case breakers and we usually concentrate on really high profile, famous cases. Uh, before that I was friends with a woman named Jen Buchholz, who is the ringleader of our investigative group through AMU, which is American military university. And uh, through her, I met George Jared. So we were all members of the Case Breakers. Jen says, hey, I want to shoot off and create this other smaller investigative group to concentrate on smaller, lesser known crimes that have a high solvability percentage. And I said, yeah, sign me up. I'm on board. And that's how I met Melissa. And me and Melissa, I think that first day I was at work, and I think I heard Melissa apologizing probably a hundred times. I'm sorry, I'm just blowing you up on text <laughs> messages. And I'm like, no, it's fine. This is what we're here for. So we had um, probably, I think, close to 40, I think 35 mm-hmm. or 40 cases submitted to AMU to be covered uh, by our team because Jen had recently gotten an arrest in a case that she had worked on. So she said, we need a fourth member. You're going to work with Melissa. So me and Melissa met each other and we picked uh, some cases that really spoke to us that we were drawn into. And we put them, basically ranked them by um, solvability percentage, logistics, um, information that was available, whether or not we thought maybe law enforcement would work with us. Uh, whether that is the case or not, we really didn't care. We were going to pick the case that spoke most to us. And um, we had a rank of five. And yeah, we broke them down. And one of the things, too, is that these cases have to be submitted by family members. And the family members have to 100% agree to let us work the case. Just let us do our thing. Let us do what we do. So this for me personally was uh, a bigger step forward because I had been involved in the investigative podcasting process and the investigative research already. But this was a new level because we were going to be on the ground going to the town, meeting the family, going to the crime scene, all of the above. So it was a bigger venture. And um, the hard part was, was picking a case, unfortunately. And, you know, full disclosure, this was not my first choice. And I, I even told the family that I said, this was not my first choice. The first choice that I had that me and Melissa were kind of looking at uh, was a case out of Nebraska. And that one kind of fell through because not all of the family members wanted to be involved. And it's like, okay, well, that's one of our things. Like everybody has to be on the same page and be involved. So we went to the next one on the list. Excuse me. So originally when looking at this case, I didn't think there was much there. I was like, there's not really much information. You know, I don't know what to think about this. Um, And Melissa 
from day one was very Mm. adamant about this case from day one. So it being the next case up, me and her kind of concentrated on it. We got into it and it turns out that there is a lot more here than meets the eye. There's a lot of stuff going on. And this is a case that can be solved. Absolutely. 100% can be solved. And that's, I guess, long story short, how me and Melissa met each other. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we've uh, we've had the pleasure. Um, sometimes, you know, Melissa knows sometimes the displeasure of talking to each other because I'm a moody person. And there's some days <laughs> I'm not a very big pleasure to talk to. But uh, when it comes to the case, we both have the same interest. We have the same goal. We have the same mindset. It's to get this case solved, uh, especially after meeting the family. And that that's what right. sealed the deal for me. Oh, my God. After meeting the family, I was like, <clears throat> these people are legitimately the sweetest humans on the, <clears throat> on the planet. And then we meet the rest of this huge family from West Virginia, and they invite us into, our, into their home. And they feed us and (laughs) they just want to like talk to us. And I don't know, um, just hearing like, like we did a, we did an episode uh, where we did like a live zoom with family members and we had people from our Facebook group uh, for the case that were, that were there as well. And like at the very end, like Judy's parents are just like, Hey, we love you guys. Like, we love you guys. Thank you for not giving up. You know, like, thank you for keep going. And it's like, that right there is what did it for me, you know? And it was the same way when we met him in person as well. But sorry that got drawn out, but that's how me and Melissa met. <laughs> and we've been, <laughs> we've been pretty tight-knit since I think probably August or September of last year, I think, is yes. when, we, when we started. We but, started. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I'll let you go ahead now. <laughs> Oh, okay. So I'm Melissa Sandberg. I am a licensed clinical social worker by background, but this is my passion is to work with um, victims of crime and work with the families and find justice. And I joined with Jen on a, on a separate case. And so during that process, we wanted to look at starting another team. And as Justin said, that's how Judy's case and Safe Haven got created. So you know, Justin said, you know, that I was very interested in this case from the get-go, and that is true. There was something about Judy's case when researching all the other ones. This case stood out to me in so many ways right from the get-go, and I can't put my finger exactly on why, but I knew that this is where I needed to go. There was something about her, Judy, her age, how she, you know, was disappeared and then found on her family property. To me, that was all very personal. There was some element to this that I felt we could get at. And after we met with the family and Mr. and Mrs. Petty online, as Justin said, they are the most sweetest couple in the world and they give the best hugs and, you know, they feed us and love us and they just are so appreciative and, Every time I hear them talk, I tear up because you can feel them and their emotion and all they've been through in 14 years. And 
for anyone who's not familiar with this case, her parents are in their 80s and they don't know how long they're going to be here. And that's a constant thing that they are always worried about is that they're going to die before they know who murdered their daughter. And our goal as a team is to make sure that or try our darndest to find out so that they can have a peace before it is their time. I want to get into what happened and where it happened. The first thing I want you guys to explain to the listeners is what Parkersburg, West Virginia is like. She, Judy died on the 6th of February of 2008. We're coming upon the 15th anniversary. She died under what are considered very mysterious circumstances. What is Parkersburg like? Is this like a small town rural, like you guys visited? Is this a kind of place where everyone knows everybody else where, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is a very small town feel. So Parkersburg there, everyone kind of knows everybody. Everyone's grown up together, knows somebody who knows somebody. But the thing that also drew us to Judy's case was there's a lot of unsolved homicides in Parkersburg. There's a lot of things that happen in Parkersburg that the community is begging for more help and begging for people to take a look at all of these unsolved cases. So when we went on location, part of our process is to go into restaurants and bars and local spots to talk to the locals of Parkersburg. And one of the things we constantly heard over and over and over again is their their distrust in law enforcement, all the unsolved cases. They would say, hey, well, why don't you take a look at this case and this case? And there was this woman found out here and there's you know a lot of drugs in parkersburg there's a just a lot of things happening in parkersburg but there's also the other side where people are very caring and helpful and really want justice in their town to get back to what it could be is that what Uh, your thoughts are justin no i absolutely agree it's a town of about i want to say thirty thousand people it's right by the ohio border um a very close-knit community for the most part, but when we showed up there, we showed up, we didn't let anybody know that we were coming until the last day. We alerted the media, so we had all that arranged to where we had the newspaper and um, the local TV news and stuff like that, but for the first couple days, um, Jen and Melissa were actually there a couple days before I got there, and we went out to a bar and just hung out. And we were just kind of like, hey, you know, you ever heard about this, you know, case? And just we would, they were like, oh, yeah, they had either heard about it or not heard about it. And then we, you know, kind of described it and they're like, oh, yeah, like I know that property, you know, it's, it's here or there. And we would just take in all this information. And the whole time we were there uh, that one night when we were in the bar, uh, we were with one of Judy's nephews. And he helped us out a lot. So we're sitting there and we're talking about the case and we're sitting at a table, just sitting here, drinking a few beers, eating some food in a bar and just talking about the case, different theories, different people who might be involved, 
all that stuff, but we're also reaching out to all these different locals. And then by the end of the night, we gave them all the business cards where it has a a Q code Mm -hmm. where you can scan it, join the Facebook group and get involved because this is a podcast that is investigative, but it's also a crowdsourced real-time investigation. So we're like, hey, join this. If you think of anything after we leave, this is how you can get a hold of us. Our emails are here. You know, join the Facebook group, whatever. And the community as a whole has a very huge distrust in law enforcement because of all the unsolved missing persons cases, the unsolved murders. Marvin Petty straight up said in one of our interviews, uh, I believe I, I uh, aired it. It was the it was the family interview initially. And he says, if you want to get away with murder, come to Parkersburg and bury the body here. He goes, nobody will ever and nobody will ever know. And we started looking up the statistics and it's like he's not wrong. So it's what what is going on here? And it's a community that's not tiny, but right. it's not exactly huge. So a lot of people know each other, but there's also people who weren't familiar with the case that we clued in and we filled them in. And there were a lot of people interested. So um, the community as a whole, fairly, I want to say low income. There's not that many jobs there. Uh, Judy's nephew was kind of cluing me into that because that was my thing. I was like, what's the social construct of this town? And he goes, dude, there's two places for men to work unless you're going to work at a gas station or like a little store. And he goes, unless you're, unless your girlfriend or wife or mom, you know, works at the hospital, you know, she's, she's going to be working a part-time job somewhere, not making much money either. So the social construct is is a lower middle class. But as Melissa said, these people that we met and had the opportunity to meet in this family are the most caring, like down-home people that you have ever met in your life. And it was like everybody that we ran into, with the exception of one person, and Melissa knows who I'm talking about, <laughs> was was extremely helpful. And uh, just very nice, just very welcoming. And that's one of the things that just just added to it, I guess, added to the aspect is these people are just down-home country folk. They're trying to live their best lives the best way they can. And they will not go to the police for stuff because they just distrust them that much. So that was a big aspect for us when we actually got there and talked to a lot of the locals. We heard so many stories. And it's like, well, this makes sense because this is some of the stuff that uh, Marvin Petty, who's Judy's father, was saying to us. And then some of the nephews and nieces, um, which would be Marvin's grandchildren, they're like, no, trust me, man, like we don't talk to the cops here unless we absolutely have to. And right. it was just, it was an aspect of the case. Right. And it's actually interesting because as we were there, we talk about unsolved cases and Mr. Petty saying, you know, hey, come to Parkersburg if you want to get away with murder. While we were on location and then two months later, there is now an, a missing woman from Parkersburg. And it's an active case and they have yet to find her. And I know that they're doing everything they can to find her, but. Parkersburg has a lot of wooded areas, a lot of 
you know, acres and rivers and, or, you know, lakes. And it's a great place to, if you want to hide a body. And unfortunately, you know, we are, there's a woman now who's missing and her birthday was on Christmas Eve and she's still, the family's still looking for her. So again, it was just odd, the timing of all of this. And now we have another missing person. Yeah. But the guy who is a person of interest, I mean, we actually met him at the bar that night. Did you? Yeah. And that's a whole different story and scenario. I played pool with this guy for probably two hours and he was ex-law enforcement and he kept asking us why, you know, why are you guys here again? Where are you from? You know, what do you guys do? You know, and he wanted to go out to Judy's crime scene with us. You know, he's like, let me go out to the crime scene with you. You know, he's like, I can give you some pointers on what to look for and what to look at and all this stuff. And like looking back, oh, dude, we (laughs) all got, that was a thing. We all got super weird vibes from this guy. And that's, I kind of was like, hey, let's go play pool. Because Melissa was pretty just like hey man this guy is weird you know and jen was saying the same thing i was like i'll go play pool with him he's got his pool cues here i'm a pool player but the whole time i was playing pool the guy he's just kept you know hitting me with questions Mm -hmm. and i was giving him very limited information but he was so adamant about going with us the next morning out to the property to where judy's body was found and then he was doing a little bit of fishing uh, yep. And then a couple months later, what? lo and behold, <laughs> it's just like, oh, that is so creepy. So creepy. Yeah. He was texting me. So <clears throat> part, and I know we got off track, but it was weird because part of what we do at the bar is we meet people. And so this guy was standing there and I went up next to him and like, Hey, you know, I'm a very social person by that, you know, my personality. So I'm talking to everybody and anybody about Judy's case. And he tells me he's a cop. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness. So here's this case. And he lives there. I'm like, have you heard about it? So we actually start talking about scenarios. And he's telling me, I wish I could remember, like, how to get rid of a body or different things to look for in Judy's case. And then at that point, before it got really weird, I was like, well, here's my phone number because that's what we do. Like, here's my number. Call me if you hear anything, if you know anything. And so he took my number down and then it got weird. So I brought him over to the table with Jen and Justin and the nephew and everyone and like, hey, this guy says he's a cop, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when Jen's like, uh-uh, <laughs> no, there's something wrong. And unfortunately, um, he kept texting me even the next day. Like, hey, are you going out to the farm? And I had no idea who it was because, again, I give my number out to so many people there. And so I never answered because I knew it was him at that point. And then I didn't have his number saved. And as we got back to where I got back home, he kept texting me every week, every couple of days. Happy Thanksgiving, like all this stuff. And I'm like, who the hell is this? You know, like I had no idea. But I saw it was from West Virginia. So I'm like, maybe it's a family member or somebody. So finally, like in December, like December 1st, I was like, I'm sorry, who is this? Because I kept getting texts from this person. And I don't want to be rude if it's one of Judy's family members. And he said, oh, this is Preston. And I went, Preston, I'm thinking, I'm like, does this have to do with the the Judy Petty case? And he's like, oh, yeah, how did that go? And then I realized who I was talking to and I stopped talking. And it was weird because he's like, what are you doing this weekend? Are you going out? And I never answered him. And that was like on a Wednesday. 
And this girl was last seen with him on Saturday night. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it was bonkers. When we realized who it was, when they put out his picture on Facebook with this missing, her name is Gretchen Fleming. Yeah. And yeah. they put out a thing of like, you know, who is this? You know, this is the guy last seen with her. And all of a sudden I look and I blew up the team's phone. I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, this guy's been texting me and this girl's missing and it's him. And we were all like, holy crap. Yeah. And just for the record, yeah. we we do not believe he was involved in, in Judy's no, case. Judy's, no, no. But yeah. it it's just a weird construct <laughs> of like what we dealt with while we were there. And then the following two months, it was just like. After two months, we see this his picture, and it's like, oh, my God, man, I played pool with that dude for two hours while he's sitting here bludgeoning me with questions about Judy's case and where we're from and what we're doing. But whether he was involved in other cases, you know right. what? You know, that, right. so that's a yep. possibility. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm Googling all this right now. <laughs> It's crazy, Roseanne. It, it is crazy, like, Roseanne. <laughs> we laugh about it. I was like, you know, I'm picking up like killers in the bar, like two for one, right? I'm there to catch one and I'm getting another yeah. one texting me. It was yeah. it was crazy. Yeah, but we he, can let we can laugh about it now, but like it yeah, as soon as in the moment as soon as Melissa saw his picture, she's like, I am so creeped out right now. I'm so creeped <laughs> out right now. It's like, you, yeah. He's texting me like, what are you doing this weekend? Hi, hi. Yeah. And it was, and I, <laughs> I think, I think one of them was either the day before or the day after Gretchen disappeared or something. Yes. Or like two days it was before. before. Yeah. Yeah. He asked me if I was going out that weekend. Yeah. Oh, wow. She disappeared yeah. on yeah. my birthday. Yeah. Uh, yep. And her birthday was Christmas Eve and I was hoping, hoping they would find her and they haven't. Mm -hmm. but you know me all of a sudden i'm like texting this preston guy right i'm like he's blowing up my phone i'm gonna text him and find out where gretchen is we're gonna solve two murders with one trip <laughs> so the person who wasn't um cooperative or nice is that the bar owner the yeah of the one where um the suspect was at the evening that Judy disappeared is that what's yes. going on yes okay. melissa do you want to go ahead and talk about bonnet Yes. Is that the question, Roseanne, about yeah. are we getting oh, into? Well, no, we can. Let me back up a little bit. I'm getting ahead okay. of myself because okay. you brought it up. And I, I listened to that part about where he was like, I don't oh, okay. want to talk to you. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then yeah, yeah. Was really oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll it's a separate to... bar. The bar is no longer there. That bar. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So getting into what happened to Judy on, on February 6th, right, uh, about yes. 2.30 in the afternoon, she left her grandmother's home. And she went to return some library books. And we know that she made it back with those books, but this was something that was not planned. She just spur of the moment decided to do this. The thing that I wanted to know, did you ask about why she didn't bring her cell phone with her? Is that something that she just normally didn't do? Or it seems unusual. Yes. So she actually didn't have a cell phone. So we found that out in the in the police reports oh, now from back in 2008. Didn't she didn't have one, but can I correct something? So she left February 6th around 5 p.m. that we okay. know of now okay. and she went to the library to return books but she never came back after that so once she left around 5 p.m. no one like the family did not see her after that right so, but we do know the books were were returned okay so she left at five 
And so mm-hmm. my timeline here is off from what was in those articles then, because it said then at approximately six, she had not returned yet. Was it later than that when her family started getting concerned? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that was prior to all this. So we got the case files recently. And so based on that, that was coming from the family's memory of 14 years ago. So they were estimating the time. Okay. So they were saying between 2.30 and 3, and we we're kind of going off of that. However, now we know that back in 08, the time was 5 o'clock that she about left. It was coming, it was more like sunset that yeah. she left. And then the family started to get worried around um, like eight o'clock, seven, eight o'clock, like when she's not back yet. And that's when they start calling around to see if she went to a, a different family's house. Did she live at her grandmother's house? Yes. She was her caregiver? Correct. Her family started to get concerned and they started to initiate their own search. And so if the timeline is off, at what time did her family decide to call police and report her missing? I believe they called around 9.30 or 10 o'clock is when they called. Mm-hmm. Correct. Seems about accurate. So, and the police would not initiate a search at that time of night then? Correct. standard procedure or is that because this uh, police force is just sort of lackadaisical anyway or? <laughs> I think it was more of, it was, the family had already kind of looked everywhere and they weren't sure they had gone out to the farm, the cemetery, all the common places. And again, she's 48 years old. The police would probably say, we'll put it on the news in the morning and we'll start tomorrow morning if she's not okay. back or if she's not found. So, no, they didn't initiate or start searching themselves right. at she that is point. an adult. And yes. did, she, did she drive? Does she normally walk places or take public transportation? She did drive. She had a license, but she didn't have a car. So when she would drive, she would use either... Uh, her sister Wanda's car or her parents' car, but she loved to walk. So she walked everywhere and where they live, she walked to all the places she would need to go. Okay. Yeah. And she was a newly diagnosed diabetic. So she, walking was good for her doctor, you know, told her you okay. need to go on walks a little bit more and stuff like that. Okay. So will you tell me a little bit more about Judy, what you learned about her as a person? Um, Did she have a lot of friends? Was she the type of person that you you did the victimology, you talked about that in the article a little bit, but was she a cautious person? Was she shy? Was she overly trusting? What was she likely for something violent like this to have happened to her? What, what was going on in her world and her life at the time? Uh, Well, we've heard a couple different things. We've heard that she was, she was innocent enough to the point she was, she might've been naive But we've Mm -hmm. also heard that she was shy to the point she was very cautious, like she didn't like talking to a lot of people. Right. So, uh, I mean, and to be honest with you, somebody can be both of those at the same time, you know. So uh, the way that, oh, man, Judy's parents, again, sweetest people ever. We had a long conversation with them about her when we first initially did our meeting with with them. And from every single thing that we've Mm -hmm. heard from every family member, she was just she was described as everybody's Aunt Judy. She was just the nicest woman. She was 48. She had never really settled down. She never really had a boyfriend. She wanted to have a whole bunch of kids, but never had the opportunity to. So 
she would take her nephews and nieces to the park and play with them and the other kids and just the all around sweetest woman. Like it's, it's, it sounds really cliche and true crime podcasting, but she was just of an extremely nice woman, just took care of her grandma took mm-hmm. care of the nieces and nephews. I mean, she taught uh, a couple of the nephews how to drive and stuff like that. And I don't know, like everybody described her as everybody's aunt Judy because she yeah. was, and was that woman. She was. And if I, I kind of look at her and compare her to Miss, Mrs. Petty, I can see how Judy could be just like Mrs. Petty. Who's very, very quiet reserved, but she has a heart of gold and she's so sweet. And what I've heard about Judy is the same thing. Very shy, cautious. She didn't, she wasn't very social. So she didn't have a lot of friends. She might've had one or two close friends. She'd never dated except for maybe in high school. She was really more of a family oriented person and her family was her life. And those grandkids or grandkids, excuse me, uh, nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews. And she just spoiled them and they all loved her. And a lot of them wouldn't go to sleep until they said good night to aunt Judy. So that just speaks to her personality, but her victimology makes her very low, right? I mean, she's not out at the bar. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She wasn't, you know, having multiple relationships or in a serious relationship. Nothing screams, you know, from a risk level that would put her in a high risk situation. Absolutely. Agree. Except the fact that she was walking wherever she was going that night. And then true. True. And that's encountered something or something. And that's one of the things we're still trying to figure out is why she went on that endeavor. Right. So the next morning, um, at the crack of dawn, I assume the family regrouped and started to search for her. And the Marvin, her father, he had gone out to the family farm. So tell me about this farm and how it's situated uh, and in regards to where the house is, where's the farm, what's it like traveling there? I know you guys considered walking it, but didn't because it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> I still uh... might. I got to get me some hiking boots when we're there. I might try it. I wouldn't okay. want to do that hike. <laughs> oh, I'll give you the rough scenario. For anybody from any kind of country or even around Appalachia area, um, this town is basically still in the holler. Um, she supposedly had, and there were, there are confirmed sightings of her on these roads. So the family farm, we'll talk about the roads here in a minute, but the family farm is situated on top of this huge, huge hill. And I, when I say huge, I mean, their driveway is 45 degrees up a third of a mile. Like that's their driveway. So, and it's unpaved, um, you need either four wheel drive or, or a four wheeler or ATV to get up there, or you're walking because you're not going to take, you're not going to take a Hyundai up there. You know, it's, (laughs) it's not going to happen. Um, the, 
it's it's a big property i believe 110 acres um i could be off melissa i'm not sure i think it was 108 or 110 acres but yeah uh, i think it's 108 you're right yeah and uh it's just a big beautiful it's a beautiful piece of property on top of this small mountain and when i say the driveway is 45 degrees up i'm not even i'm not exaggerating one bit like we were huffing we were walking up that driveway huffing just like oh my god and i was smoking a cigarette right i I don't know how you were doing that i I was it was my cardio working off all the drinks from the night before sweating and jen is like how are you smoking a cigarette walking up this freaking mountain in in adidas and i'm like hey you know it's not my first rodeo up a hill you know we're good but uh but the the strange part is the roads and the very dangerous part is the roads as well because they're mm-hmm. very very narrow and there's not guardrail on a lot of it and it is snake s shaped going all the way around there's no lighting out there um if you go off the the side of the embankment you're done you know you're not coming back from that it's uh it's it's very treacherous road. Now the roads around the area are paved, but the fact of the matter is if somebody's walking on that road, they're in the line of traffic. There's nowhere to walk. So us as a team, we evaluated that. It's like how is she walking 13 miles as a 48-year-old um woman who has just been diagnosed as a diabetic and at the same time um you know not to obviously not to not to victim shame but she's a bigger girl uh she was about five six 250 pounds and per the medical examiner's report and the autopsy report she also had bone spurs in her hips and that's gonna hurt like 13 miles with bone spurs and uh, the fact she was wearing steel-toed boots, like that's a long trek on a windy, very narrow road. So that was part of our whole, why did she end up out there? How did she end up out there? But uh, the property as a whole is just what you would imagine from some kind of movie if you've never been out to the east around the appalachian mountains it's it's in the holler and uh i mean those roads are are dangerous and the family property alone it's it's a third of a mile up a hill at a 45 degree angle to get to the house so that's kind of what we're looking at melissa did you want to add to that no, that's about right. The driveway is so steep and it's it's really hard. So from her grandma's house to the farm is, you know, as Justin said, it's about 13 miles. So that's a long ways to walk in the dark uh, with those windy roads. They're, they're horrendous. I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it without, and one of our theories, and I'm sure we'll get to this, is we're not sure how she did it without getting hit by somebody right. and i mean we have i think two or three confirmed sightings because Correct. we just recently got the uh the case file from the prosecutor's office and 
uh, those those sightings are 99.9% confirmed that was her. So we do know she was out there walking that road, but it's, I just, I don't know why anybody would would feel safe walking those roads, especially at night. There's no way in right. February. Oh, man. I wouldn't walk those roads during the day, to be honest with you, because there's right. no there's and nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. And we do have, as Justin said, confirmed now. Someone saw her at 8, 830. And then we had the last person to see Judy picking her up. So we do know she made it out to that far where he picked her up. If That's how his far, statement. How far away um, from where she came from, from the library, was she picked up? How? What's the distance on that? It had to be about 10 miles, right, Justin? I mean, yeah, or not, yeah. more than that, like 12. She was, was close to the house when she yeah, got picked up. She, yeah, she was She was within a mile of her grandmother's of her house. house to the uh, to the library is within a mile, and that's in town. And the weird thing is, too, is nobody saw her walking to the library. Is we cannot find any confirmed sightings of, of her being seen walking to the library or walking from the library. But we do know that the books were returned and that that was confirmed. But she would have had to backtrack to head to her family property. But that's within, like I said, a mile of her grandmother's house. So, I mean, we're talking 12 plus miles from the library even. Where she was picked up. Yes. Well, we don't even know if she was... Well, she was picked up uh, per right. the um, a person of interest that we're interested in, mm-hmm. um, and the last person supposedly to see her alive. Mm-hmm. And she—that's the thing, though. She was seen walking towards the family farm, and those confirmed sightings and time frame-wise do kind of correlate with. Right about how long it would take to walk from the library to to her family farm. So like the main question we started gravitating towards is why? Yeah. Why why is she walking that far out to the middle of nowhere at night? Just not not the healthiest woman on earth or a person for that matter. Like what what caused her to to head that way? And then we also have reports of her turning down rides from females. So one woman says, yeah, I saw a woman walking on the side of the road. I know it was Judy. I'm 99% sure. And I asked her if she needed help, if she needed a ride. And she says, no. She says, no, I'm fine. And the woman goes on. But then we have this one person who was the last person to see her alive is like, yeah, I asked her for a ride when she was five minutes away from the family farm and she got in my truck and I dropped her off. And it's like, how, how does this make sense? Like he, she did not know him. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a weird scenario. Melissa, do you want to add on to that? Because it's just a really weird scenario. It is. And so what we have is after the the we can mention his name because we mentioned his name on our podcast and everything. So Chris Cutright was one of the individuals who was last seen Judy last alive that we know of on record. So Chris says that he picked Judy up 
His story has changed, but back in 2008, he said he picked her up around midnight. So now the question is, is the last time Judy was seen was around 830. Well, it doesn't take her four hours to get from where she was last seen to the family farm. So I don't think that the midnight is the correct time. When I talked to Chris for the podcast, he said he picked her up early, meaning the bar closed early. So we were thinking, well, maybe he picked her up at 9.30 or 10, and that would put Judy out where he would have picked her up as he left the bar. So Chris Cartwright was at a bar. He left the bar, and then he saw a woman walking. He thought it was somebody else. So he said he stopped to see if she needed a ride, and then he realized it wasn't the person he thought it was. And so he asked Judy if she needed a ride, and she said yes and hopped in. And then he drove her maybe, what was it, not even a mile up the road, five to 10 minutes from where he said he picked her up to us and dropped her off and drove away. And all of that doesn't make sense based on how close she was to the farm. Why in the heck would she accept a ride from a stranger knowing Judy's personality? She was almost there. That doesn't make any sense to us. Absolutely no sense. And that was that was very well said. Thank you. So I was wondering about all of this, and I'm not really sure if you want to talk about this. We could take it out if if you're not if you don't know or if the family wants to kind of keep this stuff close to the vest. But do you is there any have you guys entertained the possibility that perhaps Judy was experiencing some sort of crisis? in the moment we we have talked about that scenario go ahead melissa we have we have discussed this scenario and it's it's been brought up a couple times so we're good to talk about it yeah no so we have like i said we have gotten the case file and we do believe now we have a, a better understanding of why judy was out walking that day i will say that see things seem to make more sense and we need to follow up on that so i don't want to get into specifics but we kind of have a better understanding of why she might have been out there walking. Yes. Now, regarding her mental health, I don't feel like she was having any kind of mental health crisis at this time. I think there was a lot of stuff going on uh, in in her life, in her in the home, and I think that she needed a break. I think that think stress was high, and she just needed to go to where she felt the safest which was the farm. And I think she just kept walking and walking. And then she realized, heck, I'm already this far out. I might as well keep going. And I think in her head, she just needed time to herself and she loved to walk. And that was her self-care. So she was on medication for depression, you know, but who isn't, right? So I don't feel like there was anything to say that she was severely depressed or suicidal or anything along those lines, I think this was truly a time that she just said, I need to get out and clear my head. And she just kept walking until she realized where she was walking to and said, I just might as well keep going the rest of the way. That's how I, I say it. I I completely agree with what Melissa said. Like we've gotten the toxicology report and there is no, there are no levels of medication that are over what she was prescribed. Um, and another thing too is like that that property that farmhouse 
that's why we called the podcast safe haven is because their family described it as that's where they grew up that's where where they had the best times that was their safe haven that was their safe place and judy i think without getting into too much about some of the things that we know that we haven't disclosed yet i think she needed a break she had to walk away for a minute and um if if there is one scenario i would have to agree with melissa that was it she needed a break she needed to get away for a minute but when it comes to like her being in a manic stage or whether she was suicidal or not that is not even that is not even a scenario in my book personally okay how much time lapsed between those um the people who offered judy a ride um and she turned them down and to the time when chris picked her up how much time was between those two events well if, wow. you, well, if you ask well if you ask chris that chris that time frame changes about every time you ask him okay. from uh because melissa has literally talked to him um a couple times and then we've had him meet up with family members out there and literally drive the route that he drove so like when i say this is an investigative real-time podcast like this is all going on in real time. We record episodes like three or four days before we release them because we're always getting tips and more information. So if you ask Chris, that time frame changes <laughs> because originally it was what, 9, yes. 9.30, he said, he told us. Yeah, he, and then because <laughs> yeah, the bar closed early due to a tough man contest. Yes. So he couldn't give me no. a time, but he yeah. would say, Oh, it was early though, because of tough man contest. I said, what does early mean to you? And he couldn't tell me, but he just knew it was early. And yes. then we get the case file. And the case <laughs> file says, he says midnight, that once the bar left, closed, he picked her up at midnight. So if you go back to 2008, which I think is probably more accurate. I would say it was so. Midnight. Yeah. But then you have a four hour gap. Well, and the fun part is, is we got a hold of the guy who ran the tough man contest and we're like, what time was all this going on? Like what was all going on? And he, he filled us in on even more information. And then the house that he was living in at the time, we got a hold of the daughter who was, who was there. And she's like, no, man, like I was up until this time and he wasn't here. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Like, and the bar yeah. owner wasn't helpful at all. Absolutely not. No. Wonder why. Maybe well, not. Melissa, Melissa, do you want to talk about that? Because that, that was your experience, not mine. <laughs> so I wanted to reach out to the bartender because his sister actually dated Chris. So I wanted to, that's actually why I was originally reaching out was because I wanted to get a hold of his sister and talk to her about her relationship with Chris because we had heard that he was physically abusive to her. And then my other question to the bartender was going to be, hey, was Judy in the bar and what time did you guys close? Unfortunately, he I got to his son and was talking to his son who was very helpful in the beginning and said that he would help me connect with his dad. And I said, great, and this is what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, like within... 30 seconds, he comes back and he says, my dad told me to tell you bye. Boom. Blocked me. Oh, man. And I was like, what? You don't even know what I'm going to ask? Like, who? 
what is that about? Like, I you don't even know what I'm going to ask you, but that was just odd to me. And well, that kind of sounds consistent with the way people are about, you know, Snoopy people and police and investigators yeah. and stuff, you know? Yeah, that could be. That could be. And it was just kind of, yeah, it was just kind of shocking because his son was so very helpful. And then I said, well, this is what we're doing. I'm just looking into Judy's case. And I understand that, you know, your dad knew Chris and he was out there. And then all of a sudden it was like his dad said, nope, not talking to her, like block her. And that was it. Yep. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. And, and here's the deal, like with him, we just wanted some random information that right. isn't even, you know, we weren't accusing him of anything. We just no. wanted to nail down some timelines and some specific mm-hmm. times to kind of narrow down our time frame as investigators. Right. And that unfortunately was not the case. And um, luckily we've had other tips come in and people talking to us to where we, and then when we got the case file a couple weeks ago, that really narrowed down our time frame and helped us out a lot. So it's like, okay, you can be that way if you want to, but we're going to find out one way or another, whether you want to talk yeah. to us or not, right. you know, mm-hmm. but it just makes you look bad. Um, right. Initially though, I did tell Melissa the same thing. I was like, I've been involved in investigations where people are just like, listen, I'm not involved, but I don't want anything to do with this because I don't want my name out there and da 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 da. And like I can understand that factor, but uh-huh. the guy didn't even give us a chance to to ask him anything. And it's like we weren't even asking you any detailed information about Chris. We weren't asking you information about this, that, or the other. We just wanted to know when you closed down the bar, dude. You know, and then you freak out and block Melissa. And it's like, that doesn't look good. But at the same time, I guess I'm kind of um, a little bit 50-50 on it. Because there are are some people involved in the case that just straight up want to be anonymous. Because they're like, I don't want my name out there. I don't want anybody knowing I'm the one who told you this. Because we get a lot of tips and a lot of information and stuff like that. And we respect that, right? But... That was that was a little bit of a weird scenario because we never even had the chance to explain or even tell them what we what we wanted to know. Right. And everyone else has been so helpful. And that was the Very weird. That's was so weird is the bartender, you know, out of anybody, it's not who I expected. Right. I mean, yeah. Chris talked to me, some other people who knew yeah. Chris, everyone's talking and the bartender's <laughs> the one who blocks me. And I'm like, literally Chris Cutright has talked to us more than the bartender. You know what I mean? Like he has literally met with the family out mm-hmm. and he drove the same route. And he goes, this is where I drove. This is where I picked her up. This is where I dropped her off. And it's like, that guy has been more cooperative than a random bartender. And like, it was pretty weird. Right. We'll get back to um, him dropping off Judy. But I want to go back to the day when she was discovered finally. So tell me about Marvin Petty. He had gone to the farmhouse the night before there was nothing on fire at that point and um, it was dark though and he couldn't get up the hill it was muddy it was just too much 
So the next morning when the search resumed, he decided to try again to go back to the family farm because that was their safe haven. And when he arrived there, that's when he saw that the the buildings on the property, the farmhouse and the, the outhouse were, outbuilding, I'm sorry, were both engulfed in flames. And it appeared that it had been for quite some time. I, I'm from the city. So if something's on fire, you know it immediately. And I was kind of like wondering how it was that these fires burned possibly all night and nobody saw, noticed, smoke, fire, nothing, and called it in. So right. I'll I'll do the short synopsis and then Melissa was is gonna go into some crazy detail. Okay. So when we talked to Alan Haskins, who is an arson investigator, and his amazing, he's he, an amazing dude, and he is so smart and one of the most informative people I have ever talked to. I read his about any kind of yeah. case. Yeah, his credentials are ridiculous. So that was my question when we interviewed him. I said, dude, I said, this is literally on top of a small mountain in the middle of nowhere. And he goes, yeah, you would have seen those flames for two miles. There's no way that nobody would have seen them. But we also have to take into consideration, this is a random weeknight later at night, earlier in the morning. And he's like, 99% of arsons are set after midnight because everybody's sleeping. Nobody's out and about. And we got to take into consideration the rural aspect of this town as well. You know, everybody's going to bed early, getting up a little bit earlier. So, yeah, people probably were asleep. But even if you're driving along the highway, you're going to see that from a ways away. But you are correct. The fire was burning for a long time. Um, I think they narrowed down. I think Alan in the last um a live actually Zoom episode that we did, uh, Alan was trying to narrow down the time frame of when the fire was started because I believe it was 8.30 or 9 a.m. is when the fire department was alerted of the fire because of, uh, because of Marvin. But, Melissa, do you want to go into more detail on that? Yeah, so when Marvin showed up, Mr. Petty, you know, part of the thing is the drive, the house itself, sits so far back from the road that, you know, you can't see anything from the road. You can't see the house or you can't see anything like that. But there's neighbors on the back side of the petty property. So the question has always been, how come they didn't hear anything? How come they didn't see anything? They should have saw the fire. Well, Alan says, yes, if it was during waking hours, you would have seen this thing engulfed in flames. But from start to finish until the house is on the ground, Alan predicted two to three hours. That's all it would have taken for the house to be on the ground. So this fire burned very hot, very quick, and it was on the ground probably within two hours because this house was all wood and had all the essentials for a perfect fire. So this fire, you know, engulfed everything very quickly and brought it down uh, in a very quick amount of time. Did Alan say? that this was a fire that could have burned that thoroughly and intensely without an accelerant? Oh, I mean, he never said that, but what he did say is because of where the body was and the more than likely origin of the fire, 
because this small outbuilding, which is like a bigger shed with a cellar, uh, even if there weren't accelerants, uh, Marvin had a lot of old wood, oak wood in there. And uh, being in February, all of it was dried out a lot. So even without the use of accelerants, this fire, as long as you had it started, it was not going to stop. But given the fact that there were, you know, chainsaws and um, all kinds of, of motorcycle, yeah, a motorcycle, mm-hmm. um, you had they had all kinds of things to add as an accelerant. But he never specifically said because he doesn't know if if I remember correctly during the interview, he's like, there's no way to tell that at this point. You know, because one of our questions was, are there any accelerants that burn hotter and faster than other accelerants? And he said, no. He's like, there's no data that we can collect on that. But at the end of the day, what he did say was it was the perfect storm of a fire to get rid of a body immediately without any kind of evidence left over. Right. And that he did say that he thought an accelerant was used just based yes. on the crime scene photos. So yes. there's something called called spalling. And he educated us on that and showed us the photos where he looked at and said, based on these photos and the con- the cement that there, he strongly believes an accelerant was poured on Judy. Yes. Yes. I did. Uh, I did forget about that. You are right. And like I said, again, Alan, Haskins, the most informative interview I think I've ever had. Because this dude, we sent him all these pictures, and he's just circling stuff. He's like, here's what this is. Here's what that is. And he's just explaining everything to us. And he even goes as far as looking at the position of the body. He's like, here's the position of the body. Here's why this doesn't make sense. Here's why this scenario does make sense. Uh, super informative interview, but yeah, we've had him on a couple times now, and I could talk to that guy for hours, <laughs> just just mm-hmm. about random investigations. There, it was windy that night, also that could have maybe whipped up the flames a little bit too. Yes, absolutely. They had wind gusts up to thirty miles an hour that night. Yeah. Um, so and it, said, it, it, it being February, everything was dry as well. So okay. It said in um, the article that um, I was under the impression the fire trucks never made it up the driveway. Is that right? Well, it's they had to that's, take. that's because they couldn't. Yeah. Um, initially, just... they didn't think initially the fire department did not know that it was either a, a homicide. Event. They didn't know about a body. They just heard about a structure fire. So they responded as such. So when they got there, they realized they could not get up this driveway. And that was why I was describing the driveway the way that I did earlier is because unless you have the proper vehicle to get up there, you're not going to get up there. You're going to walk. And when they got there, they realized they're like, oh, well, we can't get up there. We're just going to have to wait until it burns out. And that's what they did. The the whole fire just eventually went out on its own. Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, when they finally were able to get up there, um, I mean, I thought it was kind of odd 
I, okay, so they didn't know that there was a body, but um, it was kind of kind of jarring to me that Marvin was the one who spotted <sighs> the um, bone. Yeah. Breaks, that breaks my I heart. Can't. That absolutely breaks my heart. I'm like tearing up right now because um, I don't know if you saw Roseanne, but we have a photo of uh, Mr. Petty. I always call him dad. I mean, they're like mom and dad, but Mr. Petty when we were out at the farm recently and he stood exactly where he stood that day, he saw her and he's looking down and that photo, I believe Jen has it. One of her articles, it, he started to cry and I went over to him and he's just looking down and crying. And of course, when he's crying, then I'm going to cry because I feel his heartbreak. And he just says, He's looking at me, he's shaking his head. He's like, right there. He's like, if I only came up or went a different way. I mean, he. He blames himself. He blames himself for not seeing her on the road. He blames himself for not going up there before the fire started. And like, I'm almost getting a little bit emotional because when I saw that picture of Marvin, um, I'll send it to you later, Roseanne. Like you can just see him standing there and he's just got his hands on his hips and you know, he's just reliving everything all over again. And it is like one of the most heartbreaking things. And it's like me and Melissa have talked to Marvin and Joan enough. Like they've broken down lots of times talking to us because they have to relive this trauma but they also understand that the information they're giving us is very, very valuable and it's, and it's helping us. But like, I, I'll be honest, I, I showed up in West Virginia the next day. So I'm glad I didn't have to see that. And I, and I hate saying it that way. I know that's a very selfish thing to say because I would have lost it. I would have lost my shit. Like, yeah. It was rough. It, it was it. It's just because just listening to him talk about it afterwards. Yes, I mean Mom we've too. had several interviews with Marvin, uh, whether on record or off record. Like when we go, when we went there and we talked to him about it, like he blames himself so much, and it's like it's like, dude, there's nothing, you know. There's you didn't know, you know. This there's nothing you could have done. Like this isn't your fault. And he still, it's just, it's a very heartbreaking scenario. Melissa, I mean, do you want to, do you want to go in, in on that a little bit more? Are you going to cry? No, <laughs> we I'm talk fine. About it more? Okay. No, I will say though, looking at, we now have, Roseanne, we have photos now of Judy found. And now that, and that's why I brought that up because seeing what he saw now, I, I can't imagine. even imagine. I could not. Because I do not. I'm looking. That. I'm looking at Judy before they removed her, and yeah, I and now seeing him standing there and pointing to me, like she right there. I was like, you know, it just it's real life. I mean, this is yeah, this is and, as hard as you get, you know. Yeah, and when like I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I'm like. This is like a whole new level of podcasting for me personally, because I've been doing this for, you know, the better part of almost seven years now. And it's like, this is real life. And right. 
when you see an 87 year old man who's tough as nails you know and like, he's cute he's 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 tough he's, though he, he's a tough cute. dude but he's just this tiny little guy but he's the nicest guy in the world but he's tough as nails and he like he's a yes. country boy man and when you see him like when he the you look you know he looks down and he's just like right there right there's where i found my daughter and the fact that he found her and he kept telling them about the cadaver dogs he's like why do the cadaver dogs keep going back and forth from the house to the outbuilding he's like something's over there you guys need to look over there and they wouldn't listen to him so he walks over there and looks down and that's what he sees was 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 what we come to find was his daughter and um not to get too not to get too graphic with the listeners and you can cut this out Roseanne but it was it was it was a bad bad scenario and situation and scene there there was not much left and um i'm trying to be sensitive but trying to be real with everybody at the same time uh they they didn't know if if it was human remains or not or if it was an animal's remains that's how badly she was burned and for her father to like walk up and see that it was like me and melissa and jen like i said i was not there and i'm glad i wasn't because they would have seen me cry you know and that's that's something that's something they don't need to see but um <laughs> but every time every time melissa talks about it she gets she gets really emotional about it and same thing with jen even jen gets angry yes yeah. Jen gets very angry about it, and I do too. And um, it's just because of the whole aspect of it. And it's like this is real life. Like we're down here on the ground. Everybody thinks this this is like a like a good time. We're hanging out in our respective states doing an investigative podcast, but they don't realize like we spend the time on the ground going to the crime scene with the family. And that was that was like a real point. When I met when I met the Petties the next day, and you know you just see how fucking how sorry about the f bomb Roseanne, okay. Okay. <laughs> and you see and you see how amazing these people are. Like they're not hurting anybody. They are the most amazing people. And then you start getting into the case and everything that happened to them, and it's like yes, they are they are the strongest people. I have met in a long time because they had to endure so much. And it's like the fact that he was the one who found his daughter's remains are just, it's just night. It's a night. That's a nightmare, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because guys, they got to really sit down. Like hitting me in the feels here. You guys need to stop. <laughs> I, oh, I'm telling you, that's okay. why, that's why we're so invested in this. Yeah. It's I like know. the details of the case alone are enough to get involved in it. But once you learn the dynamic of the family and what they've gone through and what they've had to endure, like some of the, just the absolute bullshit that they've had to deal with. Yes. It's like, you you feel for him so much more and it's i don't know like we're like i always say i always tell marvin and joan every time we talk to them you know it's like hey we're just happy that we can help and then they'll they'll reply back they're like we love you <laughs> it's like <laughs> i love you guys too <laughs> like we're just trying oh. to help you know mr petty last time was like i cut 
give you a big hug and he did a a big hug and they Aww. they just anyways we'll get yeah. back to the case <laughs> okay yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah no, away from okay. the fields <laughs> this is this is what gets people invested and drawn into this you it it's the human side of this all you know yes yeah, yeah. So absolutely you, you wouldn't be you human if you didn't have a feeling behind this so yeah the, um, the outbuilding where Judy was ultimately found is about 25 yards away from the main house, and it was two levels. It was at a ground level, and then there was an exterior staircase that takes you down to the cellar, and that is built, what is it, cinder blocks or cement it's made out of? I want to say cement. I don't think it was, it wasn't cinder blocks. It was, it was a slab of cement. Right, and so, um, that's why the things in there, including Judy, were so badly burned because it was like essentially she was cremated. Essentially, she was yes. cremated. Yeah. Yes, it, it burned so hot and fast because it's of so long what was in there, and for so long she essentially was cremated. Yes, and um, Mr. and Mrs. Petty have left the the property as it was that from that day. Ab absolutely we we went there and saw it for ourselves back in late october and we're actually getting ready to go back in about two weeks and um see it again yeah it's it's exactly how they left it they weren't able to determine the point of origin and they don't weren't able to tell you how this fire spread whether it was one fire or two separate fire set because in between the buildings nothing was burned the house, the house was burned, the main farmhouse, the outhouse, a vehicle, a motorcycle, and a tree. Yes. So, but they couldn't tell you for sure whether this fire, like, jumped itself over to the next property or if somebody set two fires. It's really, it, it, do, it seems like, I want to say if Mr. Alan Haskins was there, he might have been able to tell you. I wish yeah. he would have been there. I and wish he yeah. would have been there. <laughs> he actually tells us now that he believes that there was one set fire. So Alan believes, again, just looking at the scene, he believes that the fire was started in the cellar and that based on the heat and everything from the cellar, because the cellar had, um, I always forget, like the what kind of roofing, Justin, you always tell me? Metal? It, it was tin roofing. Ten roofing, yes. So all of that collapsed and all of the wood and everything that was in the cellar, Alan believes that that was hot enough and the wind was actually blowing uh, towards the house. So okay. he believes that it caught the house on fire. And again, the house was made, you know, was wood and two stories and it was old and dry that it easily caught on fire and brought oh. both down. Okay. I read in the article that Judy was not a fan of the outhouse, that there is probably a very low likelihood of herself taking herself in there. Um, the, one of the theories is that she started the fire herself. Um, what is the likelihood of that, her having done that? What does the family have to say about that? They're pretty much in agreement with that. Um, she, there were snakes down there, and they were not fond of snakes. She was not fond of that outbuilding at all. And we do know that the house, after um, we talked to uh, Doug, who I'm sure we'll get into here in a little bit, 
after we talked to Doug, we did find out that the that the house had electricity. So there was really no reason for her to be out in the outbuilding. And then when you add the factor of how her body was positioned when she was found, uh, she was more than likely dragged down those stairs, um, probably by somebody wrapping their arms around her armpits, uh, letting gravity do the work, and uh, just kind of threw her off to the side there and then set the place on fire. But there was, uh, in answer to your question, there is no reason for her to be in the outbuilding at all. And before we even talked to Alan, before we even agreed to take the case, that was one of the things the family was adamant about. They're like she would not have gone in that building. There's like there's no way she had no reason to. She hated it. There were snakes in there. She was scared of it. She would not have gone in there willingly. But as it stands, the official word is the the start of the fire is undetermined. They couldn't tell if it was accidental or arson. And same goes Correct. for Judy's death. They, it's undetermined right now. So Correct. Because most of her body was destroyed in the fire. Um, so what was left of her was taken over to the county medical examiner's office for the autopsy. Um, you want to tell the listeners about that, how she was brought in, um, what the her the pieces that were there, how what condition they were all in, and um, yeah, those details. I'll tell you this much: she was brought in in a small box because that was about all that was left. Um, there, thank God, there were some of her um, liver left. To where they were able to do tests um, that helped us out a lot with the toxicology report. Um, as for the autopsy, she also um, uh, the Smithsonian was involved as well. Um, and Melissa, I'm not going to try to get you emotional, but <laughs> do you want to talk about the autopsy and then the uh, the remains that were sent back to the family? Yes, I can talk about that. So the, what they originally did was they, you know, gathered up all of their remains that they could there at the cellar. They brought them to the medical examiner's office in Parkersburg, and they had to identify Judy by her jawbone. So she did, they found a jawbone, and she, the family tells a very funny story about this. Mrs. Petty does, and if you ever want to listen to it, she's adorable in it. But it's kind of a, a very sad story, but a funny story at the same time. So Judy had a loose tooth and it kept falling out, I believe. And so Mrs. Petty said she actually super glued it in her mouth. And <laughs> okay. Yes. And so unfortunately when they found Judy, they were, she was identified by her jawbone and, you know, that tooth was there. So, you know, that's how she was identified. They did send her off to the Smithsonian for further identification and also you know, trying to figure out cause of death, manner of death. And the Smithsonian, unfortunately, said that due to the condition of the remains, they were not able to determine, you know, what ultimately, besides the fire, right, if there was any other um, intentional things done to Judy. But they did say that in the medical examiner's report that this death was very, very, like, highly suspicious and it needs to be investigated further. So... Mm -hmm between the medical examiner and the Smithsonian, both of them are saying that this death needs to be investigated further 
due to the lack of carbon monoxide in Judy's liver. So she basically had zero. I mean, it was like 0 0.09 or something. It was way below the normal levels. So we know that she was dead prior to the fire, which is the key to this whole case. Yeah, so the C2 level, in order, like Alan had said, like 99% of fire deaths, you die, you die before the the fire actually burns you up. So the level, I believe, that's toxic is above 60%, if I remember correctly. And hers was at like 6. So... Like Melissa said, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, she that's how we know she was dead before the fire started. Right. In the article, it said any levels under 20% is um, not lethal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And she right. was down very low. And so, which means that when that fire was burning, she was not inhaling any of the byproducts of it. Absolutely. Correct. And that means something else killed her. Yep. Yes. And that's, that's where that, that's where that liver sample came into play. And I thank God that they were able to have that because that told us a lot of information right there. Let's see. Okay. So let's consider the theory that was this an accident is it, you can't rule it out officially. So what kind of, in what universe would this have been an accident? Oh wow! I don't think there is one. That would have been like <laughs> maybe maybe like a yeah. DC multiverse, like <laughs> right. for a movie. Right. But yes, it, not the, here. Like we went through a lot of these scenarios when uh, we, we had Jen on, and we did an episode called "Cause and Manner of Death," and we went through a lot of these scenarios. And actually, Alan Haskins, when we had him on, he went through a lot of those scenarios as well. And he enlightened us on a lot. Of, even Jen was like, wow, <laughs> like that guy is amazing. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he is. But uh, there's just no accident scenario that really makes sense that is plausible. Uh, I mean, we've been through everything because the main thing listeners need to know is before we pick up these cases we go through a lot of this stuff like we sit down and we talk and i know me and melissa when we had our 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 five our five list you know we went through a lot of them and there was another one in west virginia that we thought about picking up which was extremely odd that involved a fire as well in a state park uh it, it was either state park or national forest i can't remember mm -hmm. but um there's just, we weigh all of these scenarios. And when we got confirmation from experts like Alan, and Jen's probably going to laugh when I say her too, but <laughs> we we weigh a lot of these options because it's like, we don't want to, you know, pick up a case where we think, you know, I mean, if that's the conclusion we come to, if that's what, that's what happened, then at least the family has closure and they found out right. what happened. You know, and they find out the truth. But at the end of the day, there's there's no plausible scenario that that results in her accidentally dying and then setting herself on fire. Right. The idea and the concept and the thought of this possibly have been having been a suicide. Um, is that something that the family has considered or were they like absolutely not? And um, I mean, same thing as an accident. It doesn't seem like it's very 
plausible that this was something that she would have done to herself. But I mean, what did the family consider or say about that in terms of her? Uh, Because they knew her best and they would know. Right. Yeah, there was nothing that indicated to them that she was going to commit suicide. And again, you never know what someone's intentions are, right? Most of the people who are going to commit suicide don't advertise it. But there was nothing leading up to, I mean, Judy was so loved and cared for and loved her family that it's very hard for them to think that that's was what she was planning on doing. And as you know, we have talked before, she went through a lot of work to commit suicide, right? It just doesn't make any sense. You're not going to walk 13 miles to then kill yourself, right? That doesn't make any sense. And you're not going to do it in a building that you hated and were afraid of. So all of that does, you're not going to worry about returning library books. I mean, nothing about that, this whole situation screams or evidence points to suicide everything points us to that this was a homicide the facts of the the facts of the case and like the evidence as well like her death would have had to have been instantaneous so she would have had to have started the fire like literally poured accelerant on herself started the fire and instantaneously kill herself which would have been more of probably a gunshot unfortunately but there's no bullet there's no evidence to point towards any kind of gunshot. There's no gun. There's no weapon. There's no nothing. Yeah. So that scenario, I mean, we played out and um, unfortunately we had to think of a lot of different scenarios, you know, like, you know, uh, if she hanged herself, you know, yeah. but at the same time, the way her body was positioned does not fit that scenario at all. Right. Was the farm, was the cellar tall enough for her to have done? And was there a way, a manner of doing that? Well, I mean, you can, you can hang yourself on a doorknob, you know, like if, if you want to do it, but at the same time, I'm not an expert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I mean, it's, you can, you can hang yourself on about anything. I mean, unfortunately that's the reality of the situation, but there, I don't even think there were rafters in there. Um, I think the seller was what about six foot tall, Melissa? I think so, yeah. Yeah. To so I'm trying to think of the dimensions. Yeah, and she's a five foot six. And I mean, yeah, that is a scenario, but still there's no remnants of that. Yeah. And if that was the case, part of the spine that was recovered uh probably would have showed a break mm-hmm. at some point up towards the uh the bottom of the skull i also read in the article that judy really she might not have liked the outhouse very much but she loved the farmhouse and Mm -hmm. she loved the property and she loved her family and wouldn't do this to the house or to her loved ones no she i don't see that happening i don't Mm -hmm. she was so thoughtful and selfless like that's just part of the victimology and like melissa had stated earlier you know we obviously don't know what demons you know people are going through we don't know their hardships everybody can fake a smile and they could be going through the worst day of their life you know but um that aside the victimology plus the evidence just does not does doesn't point us towards that direction and we have we have had to have that conversation you know with family members Mm. and it's it's a tough one to have but 
um, the evidence just does not point that way. Right. Okay. I want to talk about Chris Cutright. Um, I have a lot okay. of questions about him. Oh, lovely Chris. Oh, <laughs> Melissa is going to go off the rails here. <laughs> okay. So we know that he, at some point, he admitted to picking her up and then very briefly giving her a ride and then dropping her off. Where did, I want to know where he dropped her off at. I want to know did when he came forward with this information, what did he say? Did he talk to police? Did they have to go to him? How did he know her? How did, did were they acquainted? Would she, did she get in the car with him voluntarily? Would she have done something like that? Was he questioned in 2008? I want to know about his inconsistencies and what the police have said to him and done with him. Yeah. Well, great. A lot of questions there, Roseanne. Uh, right. well, let, me, let me know if I hit them all. Well, I'll go, Melissa, go, right. Melissa, go ahead because she has a lot to say about this. Okay. <laughs> well, I've talked to the guy, you know, and I've, I've really have tried to figure out exactly his role in all of this. If there was a role, right? We're not saying he's responsible, but what we do know is that there's inconsistencies. So I'll, I'll start at the beginning. So Chris Cartwright is an individual who uh, was out at a bar called the Sundance Cafe out on this Dallison Road. And he reports that he drove, he was driving to his buddy's house where he was staying. And on his way, as I mentioned, he saw this lady and pulled over and asked her if she wanted a ride. He said that the lady said yes and hopped in his truck. So he said that he then drove to maybe not even like 0.8 miles, something like that. And there's an intersection, there's a Y. And he told Judy, because we know it's Judy now, he said, you know, if you're going right, meaning if Judy's going to the right, that she needs to get out of the truck. And if she's going left, that's where he's going. And she, Judy said, no, I'm going that way. I live right off the road at my family's farm. So right there, if we talk about some things that don't make sense about that statement is that, as we mentioned, Judy is almost to the farm. She has, you know, maybe another, you know, 20 minute walk, half hour, if that. And yet a stranger is pulling over a, a male and we know Judy's personality, very shy, very quiet, very cautious. And he says, hey, do you want to ride? She's almost to the farm. So, you know, that doesn't make sense. When I asked Chris, why did you want to, why did you stop and offer her a ride? He said, well, she was out walking. I thought it was somebody else. And he said, it was dark out. It wasn't safe. So I asked her, she wanted a ride. And I said, well, you know, the thing that doesn't make sense to me is then why drive, you know, 0.8 miles up the road and you're basically going to kick her out again and put her back in that same situation if she's not going the same way that you're going. So to me, before she even got in the truck, why wasn't the conversation had? Where are you going? You know, do you need a ride? Are you, you know, he didn't even say that before she got in the car that she said where she was going. But he picks her up because it's unsafe, it's dark, she's out there walking, it's cold. But yet he's saying, hey, you got to get out of the car 0.8 miles up the road. So that's the first thing that doesn't make sense to me. When I talked to him, as we mentioned, he said to me, well, it was early because the bar closed. Well, now that we know back in 2008, it was around midnight, which to me is not early. I'm in bed by like 10 o'clock. So early to me is not midnight. 
And, you know, I, I don't think that he told me the bar closed early because of this tough man contest, which we know did not happen on that Wednesday night. So I think he got his days confused when he talked to me, but back in 08, he never mentioned about the bar closing early. So um, again, if it's midnight, one of the hangups that I'm now on is Judy would have already been to the farm by midnight because the last time she was seen was at 8.30. It's not going to take her, you know, another four hours or so to walk to the farm. So him picking her up around midnight doesn't make any sense to me right now. So, but if we stick with Chris's story, you know, he picks her up, he drives her there, and she just said, stop right here, which is right in front of her family's gate. So there's a driveway, like we said, the driveway is very long. It's, you know, you have to go up this horrible terrain, but Mr. Petty had a gate with a lock on it. So you couldn't drive up the driveway um, with a car, but you could walk around the gate. So Chris said, she just said, stop right here and got out of the truck. Now he told me now that that was it. He just drove away. He didn't watch her walk up. He just drove away. And back in 08, he said that um, he dropped her off and she got out. And supposedly he then told somebody else back in 08 that he waited for Judy um, to try the lock. And then she says, oh, it's locked. And he said, okay, well, do you want me to walk up with you? And she said, no. And she walked around the gate. So, you know, that doesn't make sense either because Judy already knows the gate's locked. She didn't have a key. You can see it's locked. So Chris is interacting with her more than what he told me now. He did not also mention that back in his statement in 08. So Chris was interviewed in 2008 after this happened because he was at a bar at the Sundance Saloon or the Sundance Cafe and Judy was on the news about disappearing. And Chris had mentioned in the bar that he thinks that this was the lady that he picked up last night or the other night. And that is how it then got reported to Mr. Petty because there was somebody else in the bar who knew the Petties and had grew up by the Petty farm. And so this individual said to Chris Cutright, hey, man, do you mind if I call Marvin Petty and let him know that you picked up his daughter and you dropped her off at the gate? And he's like, no, 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 that's fine. So that's what this individual did. He called Mr. Putty and said, hey, I'm here. At, you know, I was at the bar. Chris Cutright said he picked up Judy and you dropped her off. The cops then had to go to the Sundance Cafe and interview Chris. Chris did not go to the police, even though he saw her photo. And when I asked him about that, he said, well, I wasn't sure if it was her or not. Well, Chris, that doesn't make any sense, because even if it wasn't her, why not call the police and let them figure that out? I mean, how many times are you going to pick up a lady on the side of the road and you drop her off at the property that has been fight, like set on fire? That and the that fact that he told the other guy who we actually talked to, we went and knocked on this guy's door and sat down and talked to him on his front porch for about a half an hour. And he goes, yeah, he's like, it was just so weird because I asked him, hey, do you care if I call the petties and let him know? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. So he calls the petties and then Chris Cutright gets brought in for questioning, like I think a day or two later. And 
he comes, he sees him at the bar again, like a few days later. And he said, Uh Chris Cutright was just mad at him. He's like, I can't believe you freaking got me questioned. And he goes, dude, I asked you if I could call the Petty family and tell them like you gave her a ride and you saw her or whatever. And you said, yes. So the guy that we talked to who I'm not, I'm not going to name. I don't, I, I personally don't think he's involved. He, he was he was so open with us like we legitimately showed up at this guy's doorstep and he walked outside sat down and answered all of our questions and just told us all kinds of stuff and he's just he goes yeah he's like i could never figure that out and he goes i asked you if i could tell the petties you know about this and you said yes so why are you mad at me for doing it you know I don't know if Chris Cutright didn't think he was going to get brought in for questioning, but here's the deal. Going on what Melissa said, sorry to interrupt you, Melissa, but if if you didn't think it was her and this guy beside you who knows the Petty family says, hey, do you mind if I call the Petties and tell them? And you say, yeah. How either you didn't know it was her or you did. You know, there's no in between. And judging by that, he was just kind of trying to defer, I guess, is what it what it sounded like to to us when we were hearing it. Where did he say that he went after he dropped Judy off? Just home? Yes. Yes. He said he went to stay at his friend's house who was staying behind the petty farm. And he said when he arrived, everybody was was asleep. So there was a daughter who was sleeping on the couch who he would have to walk past. And his friend was sleeping upstairs uh, in the bedroom. So Chris said he came in, everybody was asleep, and nobody actually saw him come in. Yeah. And then a dog. Mm -hmm. So we talked to the homeowner's daughter, or Melissa did. And she goes, first of all, that dog would have barked and woke woke everybody up. But second of all, she said that, the time that he originally told us that he got home, she's like, I was still awake. You know, I, I wasn't even in bed then. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa. That's that's what she said, correct? Right. She was in middle school at the time. And when I had talked to her, we were going off the thing that Chris said he left the bar early. And he couldn't give me a time frame, as I said. So we're thinking 930, 10 o'clock, you know, not midnight. And she said, no, I was awake. I mean, I'm. She's in middle school, and Justin and I both have middle school kids. I'm like, my daughter's not in bed by 9 or 9.30. So I'm like, <laughs> no that way. can't be true. No And way. he would have had to walk by her. And she also told me then that she has dogs. And so if Chris would have came home at 10, 10.30, you know, and she wasn't in a deep sleep, she would have heard the dogs, and she didn't hear the dogs. Does he have a criminal history? Well... <laughs> So officially or unofficially. <laughs> um, so, so we do know he's had a DUI. Um, yeah. He's gotten picked up for, you know, here and there kind of thing. Even though he doesn't drink. Don't, don't even let's though not he forget doesn't that, drink. Melissa. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't drink, yes. but he's got a DUI. Okay. And uh, yeah. we have ask, several I pictures. I was if he was drinking that night. That maybe that well, fogged up his memory. Great question. Yeah, that's, so that's a scenario. Well, and I there was actually an episode where we got asked that question or we were talking about it. And I was not trying to play devil's advocate, obviously, but if if somebody is drinking, their their memory is gonna be a little bit flawed. You know, they're gonna not gonna have exact times. But right. given that, 
Chris Cutright straight up told us, I don't drink, you know, I didn't drink then. And it's like, bro, we got pictures of you drinking (laughs) beer, like all over the place. We have people calling us, telling us, yeah, he's full of shit. He drinks. And then you have a DUI. So like, don't, don't, don't lie, dude. Yeah. So what's uh, interesting is in the case files, it says James Bonnet again, interesting, said Chris was not drinking that night and that James doesn't drink either. And what's interesting about that is, you know, everyone I've spoken to, Chris was a drinker, big time drinker, and he might have stopped after his DUI, but it's not like he stop drinking permanently and the DUI was not around the time of 2008 and he was going through a divorce and the I have spoken to you know people that were in relationships with Chris and there is no way they said that he would have stopped drinking you know during this time of him going through a divorce he also you know we've been told was on you know pills taking popping pills as well and the thing about west virginia from the bar that they were at to where he was going is a road that a lot of people who drink take because there's no cops out there so the likelihood of him drinking and driving is as high again but we have chris telling me himself he was not a drinker back then and he's not a drinker now and i have photos of him actually at fourth of july drinking so, yeah. you know, one of the things I have a hard time with is me and Justin talked about this on an episode. Dude, why lie about drinking? Like, that's so stupid to me. Like, I'm drinking right now. I'm having a beer. Why lie about that now? Right. Unless there's a reason you're lying about that. That is so minor to say you're pointing out to me that you don't drink now. Right. Why? When we know that social media, we can tell you're drinking. Why lie about it? So. If you're going to lie about drinking, what else are you lying about? That makes zero sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Or if you're lying about drinking, why are you lying about drinking? Right. Did it right. was exactly. it was that a scenario that was involved in what happened that night? You know, if right. if that is the scenario, like I said, um, d- disclaimer, you know, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. Right. He's right. not a suspect. He's right. been brought in for questioning a few times, but his name is associated with this case because he is the last person last. to see her alive. And that's yeah. self-admitted. That's yes. self-admitted. And no one else has come forward to say, hey, I saw Judy, right? Chris is the last one. In regards to his criminal history, you know, I have oh, spoken to, <laughs> I've spoken to, unfortunately, a lot of women who have been victims of Chris's abuse. So they have been physically abused by him, emotionally, physically, verbally. He, to me, was a very big bully and he would become very physical with his girlfriends when he was drinking. Yeah, and there so was it's an not instance, out of the realm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there was an instance where, I mean, it, the one of the girls he was dating, her brother, was like, yeah, man, I did not want her seeing him because, you know, he's known for for beating on women, being violent with them and stuff like that. And Any kind of sexual violence? No, I a, have not heard that. that. Was a, I haven't heard that either. Sorry to cut you. That, oh, that was a big question for me as well. Right. But, you know, 
when you come to physical violence at a certain point, if you're drinking, you know, nothing's out of the realm of possibility. Melissa, do you want to, do you want to add on that or anything? The other thing I'll say is when I've talked to the other, to the women Chris has been in relationships with, when I've asked that question, they have said no, they, they were, there was nothing sexual, no sexual abuse that they have told me. They have admitted to the other, you know, to the violence that he, you know, has beat up on them, held gun to their head, um, you know, push them around. There's a lot of that. But when I asked also about, is it possible, would you think that, you know, Chris is capable or possible of, you know, sexual assault? And they all said no, but the physical, absolutely. Hmm. Interesting. But you can't rule it out, right? You don't know, but yeah. they have not had that experience of the sexual violence. It's all been physical, verbal, emotional. Right. Which is enough. <laughs> I mean, if, if Chris Cutright is a viable person of interest, that leaves us wondering then what's the motive behind this then? What, what, That's what, why? One of, um, we've, oh God, Melissa, how many hours have we talked about a motive um, <laughs> <laughs> between, between so many different people? Um, there's several different motives. Um one of which is him and or him and somebody else were drunk and they were driving and then they accidentally hit her uh, walking along the side of the road. And that is a very plausible scenario because of when we were on that road. That's one of the that's one of the advantages that I've never understood because this is my first on the ground in-depth investigation. And Jen was always very adamant about that. I'll bring up Jen Buchholz again because she's a phenomenal investigator, amazing woman. Mm -hmm. And she was okay. like, this is the advantage of being on the ground and going there because you get to see that road. You know, you get to see the property, you get to talk to the people. And when we went there, we never, before that, we never thought of that scenario. And after we left, we're like, you know what, like maybe somebody hit her, you know, and just carried her body, you know, whether they did it by ATV, you know, whether they went around the back of the property by ATV or four wheel drive, um, maybe they put her in the bed of a truck, you know, or something and carried her body and took her body up there and then just disposed of the body because they were drunk and they hit somebody and she might've been still alive. She might've been um, already killed at that point but that was a scenario that after we went there we actually came up with it's like this isn't a bad theory and it kind of plays into the fact that Chris now is so adamant about him not drinking it's like oh I didn't drink we didn't drink back then you know da 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 and it's like why why is that a thing that you're lying about right now you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. But theory-wise, oh, there's a few of them, and some of them are more graphic than others. I'm sure your listeners 
are are competent enough to come up with that certain scenarios you know i'm not going to go into detail and stuff like that yeah yeah but uh you know that is a theory as well and it's one that we can't rule out and to be honest with you like at this point in time dude chris might not be involved you know it might have been somebody else who was driving a car who was drunk as shit and just tagged her on the side of the road and she was just super injured and they're like and she was almost home you know and she might have died on the way there or died up the hill or you know she might have walked up the hill with somebody and somebody made an advance towards her and she fought back and you know it it turned violent there's there's a few scenarios that are more plausible than others i suppose um what do you think melissa yeah i mean our motive i think in this case is really difficult i don't know if we'll ever find the motive yet but i feel like what we do know is that we have chris dropping her off that much we know and actually tomorrow in our episode we are interviewing a canine expert because we do have canine reports that show that the dogs were hitting judy scent going down the driveway so we're going to talk to the expert about that and the the reliability of that because that would then lead us to believe that chris did drop her off at the driveway and judy did walk up the driveway based on the reports that usually a scent lasts from five days um you know up to 14. so if we follow that to judy did go up the driveway she did make it up to the house then what happened right because that's what we have to figure out is something occurred when she finally got there did she walk upon some squatters so this property to other people might have seemed abandoned but it wasn't abandoned mr petty tried to keep it up as much as possible nobody was living there but it still was a property that was taken care of they hunted on there it's a well-known property in the area because of the hunting and yes, so yeah. is it possible that judy walked up there and there was things going on illegally and she walked into a situation that people felt they had no other way out than to do what they did you know the other possibility is did chris drop her off she walked up there and he came back through the back way on a you know on an atv to check on her see what was going on and then something happened so, you know mm-hmm. so we have to we know that she's there so now it's kind of figuring out who had they were covering up something right because they went to extreme lengths of setting this fire because there was no need to set the fire yeah you know they were going to hide evidence because if you when we were walking up this driveway roseanne i have to tell you one at one point i had to stop probably take a break because i was exhausted <laughs> and i look around and it's like this is not to be crude but this is a perfect dumping ground if you will because it's 108 acres i mean we we talk about the you know unfortunate gretchen fleming who's still missing west virginia you could easily you know dispose of a body if you want to get away with murder and the body not be found for if ever if ever yeah and yeah, uh, actually they is. just um when they were searching for gretchen 
Uh, I think yeah. it was probably two or three weeks ago. They came up with, yeah. they found human remains. And for about a day, they were like, is this her? And it's like, nope, it's not her, but it's somebody else. And it's like, that's how rural some of this area is. And this is just for um, um, knowledge, knowledge sake, this is outside of Parkersburg. I believe it's Waverly right. is the actual right. town, which is right outside of Parkersburg. But it's it's the same concept. Like, it's very rural. In like Marvin said in several interviews, he goes, "If you want to get you want to get away with murder, come bury a body here, man. Nobody will ever find it." And it's when we were walking up that driveway, which again, a third of a mile <laughs> at a forty-five degree angle, and it's not a paved driveway, you know. So <laughs> you got the it's power a... of nicotine behind you. <laughs> I did. Yeah, he does. I'm I'm gonna follow him next time behind it. To... <laughs> I had the power <laughs> of uh, I had the power of cigarettes and Adidas shoes, and I was yeah, just trekking. Like, just to blow your smoke at me. Yeah, <laughs> and it was funny trail. though. Like funny story, you know. Try to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, when me and Jen were walking back down, we were sitting there and, and, uh, you know, the grass was about shin high. And like I said, the only track marks are like from wheels. So you have that strip of grass in between wheel marks, and then you have a bunch of high grass on either side and woods and shit. And, uh, I told Jen, I said, listen, I said, here's the deal. Like, I know there's snakes out here. And if I see one, you're probably going to see me like scream and run <laughs> because I'm scared to death of snakes. And she looks right at me and goes, you know what? I'll be screaming right behind you. Dude. Like <laughs> I'll be running right behind you. And you know what? It, I would be right behind the <laughs> both of you too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, that just gives, um, you know, that's just how rural it is. And uh, I tell you what the one cool thing and not to get too far off topic when we got up there melissa did you see the mailbox i did i saw they have a picture they have a mailbox up there yes and it's and it's marked you know messages and letters for judy and people go up there and i'm not even i'm not even trying to get emotional right now but family members go up there and they'll write letters to Judy and they'll put it in that mailbox. I was wondering about that mailbox because it seems like a random thing in this burnt out hole in the ground. Yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. Yeah. You open it up and there's you, you, there's stuff in there, all these pictures and it's just like a little collage pictures and little notes and letters and stuff that like family members have written to Judy and they just put it in that mailbox. Melissa. Just, yes. You, did you speak to Chris face to face? No, on the phone. Okay, I was wondering if you actually saw him. If you, well, oh no, but I will in two weeks. Ask us in. Ask us in two weeks. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I'm so excited. I really uh, want to know like your vibe, what you, what your women's intuition uh, tells you. About oh, you. yeah, I can tell you over the phone though. Just okay. I mean, obviously, in person is going to be much better. Um, but over the phone, I can tell you, uh, you know, he he didn't take the call very seriously. He was laughing kind of throughout it, like a nervous laugh. And, you know, he often couldn't remember stuff and he would laugh about it. And, you know, one of the things I speak of women's intuition, when Kelly, the sister, met with him and she shook his hand, 
Mm-hmm. You know, she says, just like you can tell from a, a handshake, right? A man's handshake. It was very weak, nothing there, like limp. Like she's like, he, he, you know, just put off this vibe. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he is as smart. I think it's been luck. Um, <laughs> I don't think so, he's very smart. <laughs> yeah, whoever did this got lucky. And what I mean by that is because it was a perfect storm of the fire and that the fire department could not put out the fire, it allowed the fire to burn top of Judy for hours and hours and hours. And so it just continued to burn her. And to the point of cremation, that's luck. That's pure luck. And as Alan said, if you want to get rid of a body or hide evidence, a fire is the worst way to do it because fires are seen. There's always remains left over, you know, all of that. But in Judy's situation, it all collapsed on her. And because they did not put out the fire, you know, right when it was seen, a lot of her remains were destroyed. That's luck. I don't think that this killer is very smart. I think they panicked. Um, I think whatever happened, happened, and it was a, oh, crap. Uh, now I have to cover this up. Looked around, started the fire, and took off. Everything else, I think, is pure luck. Not being smart. Not yeah, being criminal. Smart. I would agree with you because, judging by Chris, and we even had um, one of his ex-girlfriends say, no, when he's nervous, he starts laughing. So when Melissa was talking to him, and then when Linda, um, or not Linda, uh, when Kelly was talking to him, um, they both said the same thing. And Melissa's like, yeah, he just kind of like started laughing and stuff. And his ex-girlfriend like confirms like, oh, yeah, when he's nervous, that's what happens. And it's like that would explain a little bit of the handshake as well. But uh, intelligence-wise, Yeah. He's not a brain surgeon, you know, he's, uh, he, he just, he, like Melissa said, I can't reiterate that enough. He, whoever did this, not, not even saying Chris did it, but whoever did it got lucky because as Alan Haskins told us, he goes, this is literally the perfect storm of getting rid of a body. It was a perfect weather conditions. It was the perfect place to put a body. And it essentially cremated her. And that's, that was the, uh, that's how it happened. Okay. So you guys host a podcast together. It's called the safe Haven. Um, you're 10 episodes in now. Will you tell us a little bit about the podcast when it comes out? Like, are you going, you, you're saying this is a real time investigation. What's coming up next. All right. So, um, yeah, it's called safe Haven, the murder of Judith Petty. Uh, we started it and we based it on the entire investigation that we're doing and how it happens is we take tips, we reach out to people, we gather information, we talk to people who consult for us, which are um, experts in certain fields, which we've had Alan on. He's an arson expert. He's had 35 years of experience. He's an instructor. 
just an amazing, informative man. Um, next, actually, tomorrow, me and Melissa are talking to a canine expert, somebody who trains cadaver dogs, and uh, it trains them how to track and stuff like that. And uh, because we have the whole case file, we have the canine reports from the case file and everything. And like, we had a lot of questions about that. So this, this should help kind of close that gap. Um, we record usually on Saturday or Sundays because that whole week we're gathering information and we record uh, or we release episodes usually on either Wednesday or Thursday morning, depending on the scenario. I'm the guy who does the production on the podcast. So sometimes I have to take time to level audio and um, make sure everything sounds good. So everybody can hear it and it's good quality and stuff like that. So usually it's Wednesday morning or Thursday morning and um, coming up. Yeah. Like I said, we're, we only record like three days ahead of time. So it's a real time investigative crowdsourced podcast. Um, here in a couple of weeks, we will be going back to West Virginia for the 15 year anniversary of Judas, uh, disappearance and death. Um, we will have an opportunity to re-interview witnesses. Uh, the prosecutor's office and the investigator that works for them has given us that opportunity. So that should be interesting. Um, I, I know I got a few questions for, <laughs> for a couple people and, uh, yeah, we're just going to keep plugging away. Um, we got a billboard coming. I have a donor who wants to remain anonymous that listens to mysterious circumstances. And she goes, I want to put up a billboard for you guys. So we're getting the final um deal done on that so we should have that up by the time we get out there and just raising money for the reward we have five thousand plus dollar reward for an arresting conviction and yeah it's just a team effort um george and jen have been great they have their own case that they're working on right now but jen i think melissa can agree about any time we have questions for jen or want her to come on she's like yep when do you guys want me? <laughs> and right. She'll stop what she's doing. And like I said, she's the ringleader who put this group together and we all have the same goal, you know, and it's just to, to try to help, you know, where other people couldn't or wouldn't. And, um, the investigator for the prosecutor's office that we're, that we're working with, he's a great guy. And he is like, you know what? I'll admit mistakes were made. Like, let's fix it. Let's work together on this. And he's the one who got us the case file. Um, we finally got the family, the autopsy report, toxicology report, ME report, all that stuff. Um, we're all working together to just try to get some answers to find out what's going on. So, you know, hopefully we can get those answers. But, um, yeah, uh, Melissa, do you want to add anything to that? No. So our event... Well, yes, I do. Um, our event <laughs> is uh, going to be in Parkersburg. I always have something to say. In Parkersburg on February 4th, I believe, we're having it at a North End Tavern. Super excited. We have Safe Haven t-shirts. We have Safe Haven koozies. We have some um, some thermals that we're going to be giving away. And so all, we're doing proceeds, a raffle. all proceeds go to the reward fund. 
Yes, yes. So proceeds from the shirts and from the event that we're having, the it will go towards increasing the reward fund. So we're already over 5,000, like 200, 300 already. So we are very excited about that. Again, like Justin said, this is the first time in 14 years that we've actually had an assigned prosecuting attorney to the Judy Petty case. So prior to Safe Haven coming on, there was no assigned this case was not getting looked at. It was not being investigated. There was no assigned prosecuting attorney. Now there is. We are working very closely with Dogstrom, who's been amazing. He's given us access to all the case files. He's going to meet us when we come into town. As Justin said, we're going to, I'm going to ride along with him. I don't know if he knows what he's getting in for, but he said I could ride with him. <laughs> and we're going to go around. I'm excited. You know, I definitely want to re-interview some of these people and, you know, kind of put the pressure on. Right on. I want yeah. to know where, where can we find you on social media? Tell us about your pages. You're on Facebook. I know that. Facebook is actually the only one. We have a Facebook group. So mm -hmm. you can follow the page Justice for Judy. Um, that is set up by the family, by her sister, Kelly, I believe she, she runs that. Um, no, we do, Justin. The No, the page. We oh, the page, page, yes. No, we have a we group. Uh, we run the group. It's uh, yes. yeah. If you just go into Safe Haven, just or uh, Safe Haven, the murder of Judith Petty, uh, search that on Facebook. You can join the group, get involved in the investigation. We encourage everybody because that's the whole point of us crowdsourcing. This is we want as many minds working together as possible on this investigation with us. And like I said, I cannot reiterate this enough. This is real time. Like you get caught up on the podcast, join the group, put your, give you, give us your input, what you think. If you're a professional in a certain field and you have an expertise, dude, tell us about it. We want to hear about it. We want all the brains working on this as possible because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like that's, what's going to solve this case. So mm -hmm. yeah, we're very adamant about that. Like I said, so, uh, Facebook is the only social media that we really have. Um, we're just trying to, because the Facebook group is so active, we try to just concentrate on that. We don't have Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. Obviously if somebody wants to reach out to me, on um, Instagram or Twitter or something like that. You can find me mm -hmm. at Mysterious Circumstances. You can find me on any social media. So, I mean, you can reach out to me personally if you want you're, to. You're the one always posting the memes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hate taking social media seriously. And like with, <laughs> with, with MC, it's totally different scenario. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't have to be serious all the time. But when I, when I am serious, I am. And uh, with yeah. Safe Haven, I am dead, dead to rights serious. Like this, getting involved in this investigation has um, honestly been enlightening for me. And I'm not as active in the group as I should be, and that's because of personal reasons, um, stuff going on outside of of podcasting and stuff like that. But I'm still easily reachable, as Roseanne knows, and stuff like that. So yeah. we just encourage people to get involved. Like, if you want to be yeah. a part of this, be a part of it. Like, come yes. on, tell us what you think. Give us your theories. Like, if you have an expertise, tell us about it. You know, we can't we can't encourage that enough. And we've seen right. cases and in podcasts that have covered cases and have solved them. We've seen arrests happen, and it's so exciting 
And when this grassroots kind of effort really leads to something real and tangible and solid. Yeah. And that's why, that's why Jen started this group with AMU um, because of Rebecca's case when they got an arrest and they got a conviction. She's like, we got something here. And she decided to branch out and do that. And um, it's been phenomenal. And I don't know, I can't, I can't express enough, like how proud I am to be a part of it. And um, just working with Jen and George who have so many outside consultants and know so many people and working with Melissa and everything, it's just been it's been a realization. It's, um, it's a lot different when you talk about it as to where you're on the ground, actually going to the crime scene and meeting with all these people and, and all of that. It just, I don't know. It's a realization. It's like, this is real life. Like we can actually do something here. Yeah. And I, I will say for, for myself, if I'm very active in the group, I kind of run the group in, the, in that sense, because oh, Justin is super busy. <laughs> and I, if you ask a question, I get back to you very quickly. Um, and, and you know, I get a lot of private messages from people who live in Parkersburg mm-hmm. or people who want to ask questions and they don't want to ask it in the group, right? So feel free to contact me through there. And that's how I've made a lot of contacts is for, from people who will private message me from the group saying, hey, I, I want to talk to you. We had somebody reach out to me who had something that has stuck with her for 14 years. She never talked to police and it was just an odd thing that happened back in 2008 and she wanted to talk to me about it. So those are the things that, you know, we can do because we're not police officers, we're not the law. And so you can talk to us and you can remain anonymous. So to this day, I've not shared who this source is. We passed on the information to, to Doug and, you know, removing the uh, person who reported it. So again, you know, join our Facebook group. I, I post things almost daily. I have the shirts on there. I have upcoming A episodes. I- A lot of pictures too, because in the group, when we talk about certain things in the podcast, we'll post the pictures in the Facebook group. So you can actually see what we're talking about. And Alan, actually, Alan Haskins is very active in the group, too. Like, you can literally tag him in a post in that group, and he will answer. Okay. <laughs> that yeah. dude's a freaking, I, he's a genius, man. <laughs> Roseanne, too, I have, you know, in the Facebook group, we have mapped out Judy's route as well, because it's hard just to talk about it until you actually visually see it. So those, you know, are also in the Facebook group for your listeners. If they join, they can see what we're talking about. Great. And, you know, um, now Facebook has the feature where you can post anonymously as well. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, And and I tell you what, that that person that gave Melissa that information, Mm -hmm. I think between the three of us, we've sat and thought about that information on late nights. (laughs) Like, just like, man, that's just a wild scenario, you know, but it makes sense. It's just the information that we get sometimes is like, man, you know, this is pretty wild. And then when we got the case file, we can kind of, you know, compare it to other information. It's just, it's, 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 it's a trip. It really is. Okay. I think that 
we hit on everything that I wrote down. Good. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, this is totally like amazing. I, I'm so grateful for you guys and everything that you're doing. And time is of the essence because the petties are getting up there. Yeah. And they are up there. Yeah. yeah. And I would just really, it would be heartbreaking for either one of them to miss out on yes. getting some justice for Judy. Yes. Absolutely. That would, that's my, that's my biggest. I don't know fear if that's the right word, but that's what keeps me up at night. And I sit and I think, and I think of, you know, re-looking at all these, you know, photos that we not got and statements and, you know, what's that thing. And, you know, that's my biggest fear. And my hope is that that does not happen because that would be devastating. It absolutely would be. And like, if you see a picture of these two, you'll totally understand where we're coming from. And if you listen to them when they do their interviews, you'll get it. It's just, it tears them apart every day. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys again for taking the time to speak to me. I will, I will hit you up on social media as soon as I get all this put together. Thank you again. We will I'll post the links to everything, to the Facebook, to, you have a link for a fundraiser or for the merchandise on, in the Facebook group posted? Yes. Yes. I have the event posted and also the shirts and stuff are in there. Okay. I'll include all of those links into the show notes. Um, all right. I think that's all I have to ask for this. And um, okay. again, thank you guys so thank much. Thank you for having and us. Oh, thank you for having us. us. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. And, and thank you for all that you're doing for the Petty family as well. I'm feeling very fortunate to be a part of this. Yeah. We, we appreciate yeah. you being a part of it because we need all the exposure we can get. Yep. Okay. Judy needs the, the putties need this. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'm going to stop the recording now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there is one last thing that we forgot to mention in our interview that I wanted to tell you about before I close out this episode. We touched on a little bit in terms of how little has been done over the years for the petties when it came to helping to solve Judy's murder. But there was another thing that happened to them in the beginning that only added to their trauma. So they were watching the news one evening when they saw a report about there having been a mix-up between the two sets of remains of another victim. There had been a fire in a nearby town where two girls perished, and it happened around the same time that the fire happened that Judy had been in. And Mrs. Petty immediately thought this news report about this mix-up could very well have involved Judy. So she called up the coroner's office and was like, please don't tell me that we were one of the families that has the wrong remains. And sure enough, they were. Someone was sent over after they found out on the news about the mix-up to explain what happened in person and to apologize to the Petties that the wrong set of remains were given to them. The Petties got the remains of one of the girls that died in that other fire, and that family received Judy's remains, and that other family had already buried Judy. So they had to go tell this other family that they buried the wrong person. Judy had to be exhumed, and that family had to go through the burial process all over again. And Judy was finally given back to her family, thank goodness. But I mean, this was 2008, and it seems crazy that something like that could happen. 
you would think that they would have some really good safeguards in place to ensure that the coroner's office isn't re-traumatizing the families while they're still in the early stages of grieving the loss of their loved ones. And to know that the other family had to be told that they buried the wrong person and be made to go through that process all over again. I don't know if these people sued, but I mean, seriously, they should have. Anyway, uh, that brings this episode to an end. This is, again, a real-time investigation that is relying heavily on the public in order to generate interest, evidence, and leads. These people are giving their time, experience, know-how, and their platforms to help the petties receive the justice that they deserve. And like I said in the episode, time is of the essence because the petties are in their 80s. The time is fleeting. And while Judy does have a huge family that will continue to carry on the good work that they're doing, but the truth is giving Judy's parents the answers before it's too late is what we're all hoping for. These are good people. And really, only having gone through the experience of losing a child could anyone begin to understand what it means to carry around that pain for the rest of your life. Imagine losing your child to a murder and that murder has gone cold and unsolved. It becomes almost unbearable, yet they persist. So, my listeners, I implore you to find whatever ways that you can to get the word out there about Judy. There is nothing that is too small. Share this episode. Go and subscribe and give the Safe Haven podcast a listen. Give them a five-star review so more people will be able to discover it. You can make a donation to the reward fund. There's a fundraising event that's happening this weekend along with a celebration of Judy's life as they are approaching the 15th anniversary of her death. Many of you know Justin. Reach out to him and ask how you can help. If you have a podcast, invite him and Melissa onto your show so you can help get the word out to your listeners. After 15 years of having gone cold, the only way this case is ever going to heat up again is you and all of us. I want to say thank you to Melissa and Justin for sitting down and talking to me and to the petties on behalf of myself and all of my listeners. I want to extend our deepest sympathies for the loss of your beautiful daughter. I'm 48 years old right now and it really, it feels old sometimes, but it does feel way too young to not be here anymore. And in speaking to Justin and Melissa and listening to your voices and your words and your heartbreak on their show, just know that you are never far from our thoughts. And I don't think I'm alone when I say we kind of all want you guys to be our mom and dad too, because I know that we can all feel the love that you have to share. Everyone, please check the show notes for links to everything that I've talked about. And if you have any information about the murder of Judy Petty, you'll find the tip line in the notes along with this weekend's event information. The Safe Haven Facebook discussion group, you'll find the link to that. Please join and interact directly with those who are working hard to solve this. And you all know where to find Justin. He's been a BFF of our show for forever now. And if you have any questions or if you want to know how you can help, reach out and ask. And I want to thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to this. 
And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.